0: Well, welcome to Calvary. It's a week two of Love Month, and Matt did a great job reminding us from Romans 5 last week about the hugeness of God's love for us, that he would love us while we're still sinners, and that his love for us is an undeserved love. Uh, today, I want to try to pull something off. I want to talk about the Super Bowl. I want to talk about Valentine's Day. I want to talk about martyrdom, and um, I'm going to try to pull this all together, so if this is an utter failure, I actually feel quite vulnerable, but if this is an utter failure, you'll have to forgive me. But the point of the morning is this. um, Who you love matters, and whether or not you love Jesus more than anything is, is... Along with whether or not you treat the Bible as the living word of God, one of the top two things that will decide how your life goes. And those things are connected, but like... It's great to hear about how much God loves us. Sometimes it can seem like there's a breakdown in North America where that doesn't translate into our love returned to him in kind. So we're going to talk about that today. Here's some scriptures about how much it's important to the Lord that we love him. You might remember from the Gospels, this was... uh, what we call Holy Week. It's Jesus' last week on earth. He's in Jerusalem. He's having all these debates. It's the most politically active, people blogging about stuff everywhere, time in Jerusalem's history where the Messiah is in the city and he's having all these conflicts and debates and somebody stands up to test him and says, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus answers this, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one and you shall love the lord your god with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength that's from mark 12:29 so it's really important and god's looking and he cares when jesus our lord was asked what is the most important commandment he went back to Deuteronomy i think it's chapter 6 and he said it's the one where god tells his people love me with everything you've got. And when God gives a commandment, he doesn't command people so that they become worse than they would be without him. He gives commandments that turn us into who we should be. We're made to love him. At the end of uh, 1 Corinthians, so this guy, Paul, um, who was a, a Christian hater, a Jesus hater until one day Jesus came down from heaven and miraculously appeared to Paul, struck him blind for a little bit, then re- restored him from his blindness and said, "You're going to serve me till you die." Now Paul's very excited about this. He writes this letter to Corinth, and Corinth is a, a fresh, fresh, uh, fresh money city. They're they're a Los Angeles, they're a New York, they're an important city, and there's lots of mess going on there, and Paul is just dealing with all these problems in the church as they're trying to blend true faith in jesus with their old culture and it's not working at all and he ends his letter with this i paul write you this greeting with my own hands and so somebody else would often write the letter and then he would put his signature on it if anyone has no love for the lord let him be accursed our lord come The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. That's right at the end. Now, many of us emotionally probably couldn't say or write this. I love you guys. God bless you. If anyone doesn't really, really, really love Jesus, they can go to hell. See you later. Is it just me? He even right after he says the uh, my greetings, he says, "Greet each other with a holy kiss," which was totally put to death by um, our current culture. But can you see that? I love you. If you don't love Jesus, is there anything worse that can happen to you? The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. Do you see that? And then the Apostle John writing the book of. Uh, Revelations, the last book in the Bible, writing these letters to different churches that are all in trouble, and they're getting each a personalized encouragement from Jesus, which is an encouragement that involves some rebuking and correction. He writes to the church in Ephesus. This is Revelations 2. It says, But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Repent. Some people debate, is this love for each other or love for the Lord? It, to me, it seems impossible that the consequence, that it's this thing where he's like, if you don't get back to loving, your church is gone. That's what he's saying about removing the lampstand. A lampstand was um, symbolic of a living church in Revelations with God's presence in it. And and he's got praise to do them because they're a, they're a doctrine church. They're a evaluating doctrine church and so there's there's a few false doctrines in the church that the church is successfully resisting but he says in the midst of all your successfully resisting false doctrine you've lost your love and this is not a pass you don't get a C minus pass this is an F fail so love matters and your love for Jesus matters a lot And I know we're justified by faith and we're saved by grace. But that new heart that we get in the Holy Spirit, when we're born again, is a heart that was made to love God. So that when there is no love, it looks like there is no life. So your heart matters. I am attempting to click. Can you... Thank you. Wonderful. Now, as part of your love, I want to talk about um, what is sometimes might be called romantic love or eros, if you're a C.S. Lewis for loves person. Um, this kind of passionate love. I did a wedding last weekend, so that, that love that makes you want to like marry somebody and go on a honeymoon with them, that kind of love... And, of course, this is beginning to talk about the Valentine's Day theme. Um, dudes. Valentine's Day's on Wednesday. So get your flowers, get your chocolate, save yourself some trouble. I learned this lesson the hard way. It wasn't Valentine's Day, but, oh, hey, Andrew's here in the, fr- in the front row. Years ago, Andrew moved from uh, Steinbeck to Winnipeg, and you moved on Jackie's birthday. And uh, I helped you move on my wife's birthday. It wasn't a good choice. That was bad. And then I went to go complain to Ron uh, McLean, uh, my pastor, about like like I was trying to do good deeds. Why why am I getting informed that I had my priorities not right? And he's like, Ah, no sympathy for you. You messed up, Rob. So from now on, (laughs) you got to take the moments where to privilege the person you've promised your life to in life. You got to prioritize. So there you go. I've helped. Anyhow. When it comes to romantic-type love, and I'm, I'm hopefully going to be able to pull this all together, there is a book in the Old Testament called The Song of Songs, or The Greatest of Songs, which is uh, a mixture of some kinds of love poetry, and people discuss about all the different dynamics going in there, but at the very least, it is Holy Spirit-inspired poems that capture the power of romantic love. And sometimes there's these like long poems where one person is describing all the appealing physical features of their their beloved one and then it's returned with a long poem describing all the appealing physical features of the other one and you're reading this and you're like golly you know i've i've been raised on hollywood and this even makes me uncomfortable and um and you're like lord (laughs) and some 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 people back in time uh recognized that this was from the holy spirit and uh there's this one passage in in chapter 8, where, to me at least, there's kind of like this pinnacle of talking about this kind of passionate love and how all-consuming it can be, and this is a description from the Lord, where the Beloved is saying, set me as a seal on your heart, as a seal upon your arm, which would kind of be their equivalent of like, write your name in a tattoo on my your heart and on my arm the heart signifying that part of you you that's the core of you and the passion of you and the arm symbolizing your actions and your strength your life on display let me be the most important person to you in loyalty and love for love is strong as death and jealousy is as fierce as the grave And our word jealousy, you know, there's a bad kind of jealousy where you want something that doesn't belong to you and you're bitter because of it. True? And often we talk about jealousy in the romantic world as like a crazy guy or a crazy girl who's just like super suspicious and angry and controlling. This isn't what it's talking about. In Hebrew, this word means having a zeal for what is rightfully yours. And when you have a beloved and they are yours... You belong to each other, and there is a zeal to be the number one to your number one. And so it says here for love is as strong as death. It's hard not to think about Jesus here. And jealousy is as fierce as the grave. Its flashes are the flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. What could you trade true, godly, passionate, zealous love for in earth and somebody not look at you and say you're a fool? These are the words of God. And I think part of what's going on, just so maybe so I don't forget to say this later, is there's lots of different kinds of love that we experience. And again, C.S. Lewis kind of talked about this a bit. He talked about a love that comes from being familiar with people. It's called storge in Greek. And that's kind of the love of being familiar with people, you know. You love your family. You didn't choose them, right? You get born into a family. You didn't choose any of them, but you kind of love them even though they're a bunch of annoying scumbags. And, uh, but you still love them and if anybody messes with them, you, you're gonna, you're gonna make, you're gonna send them to the dentist with a few less teeth. Because you've just grown up with them. They're, they're the reason why, um, often you love the food that you love because it's just familiar. It's like that scene in Ratatouille. Anybody, sorry, watched it recently, where that guy who just criticizes everything and then he eats the Ratatouille and then he's transported back to his childhood when his mom is comforting him from falling off his bike. And, then, and you all get it because this is story. This is just everything familiar that feels good from childhood. And he talks about philia, which is like the friendship love when you've got a bro that's your bro. It's David and Jonathan that they they uh, spilled the same blood in the same mud. There's the charis or the caritas, the agape love, which is this love that is in the New Testament, especially an undeserved love, which we often would call like, a, and the words escaped me, unconditional love, exactly, where it's just, it doesn't, start and depend on performance. It's just God has decided to love you. It's agape. But then there's also this eros love, which is the love that kind of gets all your desire pointed in the same direction, and you want something that you want because it's wonderful. And we feel it often in the realm of sexuality. God is not... Um, a physical being, this is not about sex for him, but I think what's happened is there is a part of God's heart that is so committed to his people in love that he's trying to give us an experience that understands how much he wants to be with his people forever without anybody getting in the way. With no competition and no other gods and no sideways glances and no second bests and no fallback plans and parachutes. And if this doesn't work out, then I can always become a Muslim kind of thing. Completely exclusive, all-consuming passion from the heart of God translated into our lives through what we would often call romantic love. Which brings me to the Super Bowl. I'll get there. So Agar in the end of Proverbs, second to last chapter. Last chapter is about um, the the noble woman, the fierce warrior woman. The chapter before that is this guy named Agar. He's not a Jew, but he's in the Bible, and he is kind of like the recovered from deconstructed faith sage. And he starts his whole passage at the beginning and he says, Surely I'm too foolish to be a man. I don't know the Lord. I don't know what's going on. I'm just a worm. But then he says he turns to scripture and he says the word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. And he begins to try to understand God's way, especially in the realm of mystery. And there's this passage in here where he talks about things that are too wonderful for him. Meaning they're just too amazing for him to totally understand. He talks about the way of an eagle in the sky. And you can just imagine somebody watching a bird do this. And fly around in the sky. Especially a long time ago, we didn't have airplanes, but there's a bird, they just put out their wings, and they go all the way over here, and all the way over there, and they fly so high, and then they come down, you just, you could just see a sage looking at that, going like, what is going on? Or a serpent on a rock, where they don't have legs, and they wiggle and wriggle, and, and they're from here to there, and you have no idea how they got there. There's a ship on the high seas, and they're just this big hunk of wood, and they bob, and they float, and the wind blows this way and that way, and they get where they're going, and there's no trace of how they got there. It's just weird. And the last way, and he says, is the way of a man with a maiden. Where does attraction come from? There was this one video, and I tried to find it, but I couldn't, that I saw one time, and it was these two young, Youngish people. They looked like uh, 19, 20, 21 or whatever. They were playing guitar together. So she was playing the guitar and she was doing the strumming thing up here and he was like leaning over her, playing other strings and like around her. Can you picture it? So they're playing it together. They're doing a duet on one guitar. Okay, so already it's like they're pretty close. (laughs) But there's this one moment, and they're, they're so both introverts, you can tell. They've got no expression on their face. They're just playing this, and it looked like they're in a room in Mexico or something. I have no idea. The, the strangest things. But the thing that made me smile was that, that there's one moment where she looks up at him, and he looks down at her, and then she smiles. And he smiles. And the whole room just starts to giggle. Right? Everyone just starts giggling. Because they're all thinking to themselves, if they're not married yet, they're going to be. And there is just this mystery of this kind of love where just a little smile and just a little, these muscles do this and this muscle does this and everybody knows. Where did it come from? Who can tell? It's just, there's this mystery about this part of love that God has invested into human hearts. And Agger's talking about this. Well, the Super Bowl is something I'm usually not too um, involved with. Usually, Jackie and I on Sunday morning will say, uh, is there any way we can watch this? Because whatever. And then you would wonder who's playing and what the rules are and what the halftime show is that you're not going to be able to watch and whatever it is. <laughs> but one thing I do know is that for like the last six months, every time I go on X, there's pictures of Taylor Swift in the audience have you noticed this is anybody is every time every time i go on the news there's a picture of taylor swift at a football game so weird now apparently there's some kind of budded romance with some football player and it all i want to say is it's totally captured the imagination of the united states and elsewhere People love to watch this stuff. Which is very interesting to me in two ways. Number one, it wasn't that long ago that it wasn't kind of about kind of attractive love that was the sideshow in the football game. It was about the kneeling thing, if you remember, which was a lot more angry and divisive and unpleasant for fans. But... Um, last summer, people who read culture say was declared the summer of girl, I think, because it was somewhat dominated by two things. The Barbie movie making a billion dollars, and, um, Taylor Swift's Eras tour, and which also was making a billion dollars, right? And culturally, the Barbie movie was a patriarchy smasher, yes? Didn't go see it, but that was a sub theme in it, where Ken, Ken was like somebody who'd fallen off of a parade float at one point and was, and then they were going to do stuff and it was like there was a smashing going on there. And Miss Swift is often known for her feministic ideology. But then right when the summer's over, all of a sudden, um, everyone's very intrigued about something that looks a lot more like medieval courtly love. I didn't make all this stuff up, I'm riffing off of a few other ideas, but speaking of Valentine's Day, which in our current form kind of started around the 1200s, um, people point to the first time that Valentine's Day is kind of coupled with the idea of love from Chaucer's Parliament of Fowls, and I know that's so nerdy and I apologize, but now you can Google it where it references that St. Valentine's Day in a church calendar is somewhat corresponding to when the birds start to choose mates so that they can lay eggs, and then people, human beings. Yeah, it, hey, this is church history. This is your family. You're going to meet these people. Um, you know, springtime, Twitter patient, all that stuff came together with February 14th, St. Valentine's Day. And in the medieval times, this was church history when everything was just saturated with Christianity in one way or another, but also sainthoods and a lot of stuff we wouldn't do today, the medieval Christians were wanting to have a theology of romantic, erotic love because they knew, like everybody else, that this is one of the most dangerous forms of love there is. It can be unfaithful, it can be violent, it can be abusive, um, They knew about the Greek idea of Cupid, who was this little guy with a bow and arrow who would shoot you to fall in love. So like love and violence were all together. And often the medievals would talk about Cupid shooting you right through the eye and driving you mad and making you do things that would destroy your life. And so they had this idea of like, what could we talk about so that we would redeem this thing and make it pure? And the whole idea of romantic, courtly love was about like, brave knights who were literal armored killing machines doing battle in the presence of princesses to try to win their heart and they might like drop their handkerchief down to show favor to one of these knights and they wouldn't do anything unless they were married And so they wanted to take all the power and skill and aggression and violence of manly, manly men and think of it in a way that was safe and pure and honoring to the eternal feminine that was represented in princesses. And you can read uh, Sir Gowan and the Green Knight if you want another example of English uh, poetry that talked about that kind of stuff. Well, it could just be me, but it does seem like if you were going to ask who are the violent knights of American culture right now, it might be those armored, muscle-bound guys who throw themselves at each other, wrestling over a ball, having 200 and 300 pounds of muscle crashing into your face and over your back to try to win something. Yes? And then looking up to not a tower, but... A box seat, which probably costs as much as a tower, (laughs) just to be in there so you can get some Super Bowl hot wings or whatever the free food is. And you look it up and you find that the princess of pop is cheering for you. And people are looking at this, and despite what Disney's been trying to do to the princesses franchise over the last few years, all these people are like, It's a Disney princess story come true right in front of my very eyes. A manly man who on display is a gentleman towards a womanly woman who is no slouch in life, but is willing to receive his strength around her in what looks like love. And sometimes you just feel like every once in a while God says, hey guys, you're kind of on the wrong track here. I'll show you something that looks just a little bit closer to how I work. And don't just just look. Now we do live in a fallen world. So I'm not promoting anybody and I'm not saying anybody's a good person and I'm definitely not recommending that because I said something this morning, you too should have karma as your boyfriend. In fact, if you find out that your girl has karma as your boyfriend, it's time for you to take karma behind the Super Bowl stadium and introduce him to some human rights and lefts and leave the body in the dumpster and then take your girl to church. Because karma is a gaslighter, and even if it is concerned about some sort of justice, it doesn't love you, doesn't like you, and won't ever forgive you for anything bad you've ever done. And is just as happy to turn you into a slug as a son of God, which it doesn't even have power to do that either. But we do live in a fallen world, so I, I don't want to come across as naive and stupid. I do know that um, American celebrity romances, you can almost time cooking a turkey by how long they laughed, and it breaks my heart to say that because it is every broken romantic relationship is painful because our hearts were never made for that to happen. Our hearts originally in the garden were made for love and faithfulness and more love and more faithfulness and broken relationships and rejection and woundedness. We were never ever made for that. It's a result of our first parents turning away from God and not trusting him and not submitting to his word and trying to be independent and trying to go their own way and try to make it up for themselves. And when they rejected God, they rejected keeping all of his good gifts and everything became broken because of the power of sin. And sin is not just a brokenness. It is like a beast. It is like a serpent. It is like a force that pursues people to deceive them and destroy them and you and me both. I also know that people say who know about these things that the Super Bowl is actually the human trafficking uh, main event of the year. And so the people who make their money by um, selling cheap human flesh bring their wares to wherever the Super Bowl is being held uh, for money. And so this is part of the backdrop of it. and so we live in this really broken world and one of the there's two things i want to talk about love and our relationship our broken relationship with god and i want to talk about love in a broken world and so we know that as much as you, we can have like wanting love to be easy and fun and just enjoy the enjoyment of it there is so much pain and there's so much uh, turmoil about this And one of the reasons God gave people the ability to experience this kind of human desire and erotic love is because he wanted a tool to explain to us how much it is wrong and how much it hurts him when his people turn away from him. So if you remember the book of Ezekiel, we'll go back into the history of Israel. Israel is God's chosen people, descendants of Abraham. God rescues Israel from Egypt, from slavery there with ten uber-miraculous works that destroys Egypt, and he rescues them through the Red Sea, and he wants to bring them to the land of Israel. It's the people who are the descendants of Israel in the land of Israel. And with the exception of one or two kings, the people of Israel always struggle with giving their hearts to idols, and turning their hearts away from the Lord and loving idols, and turning their hearts away from God and wanting to love people and things and false gods. And it finally culminates after hundreds of years because God is a jealous God but he's a patient God too. And Israel begins, or sorry, Jerusalem is beginning to be exiled. So first the northern kingdom is taken into exile but now Jerusalem is being taken into exile as well. And Ezekiel is a priest who's actually living in the land of exile in Babylon. So he's not even in Jerusalem. And the people in exile are just complaining about the Lord that this happened. They're in exile. Everything's going bad. They're broke. They've witnessed atrocities. And they're just complaining about how God has done them wrong. And so in Ezekiel chapter 16, he takes the whole super long chapter to try to get them to feel what's happened. And he tells them this long story. He's like, this is what it was like for me. It was like there was this child dying in a dumpster who's been abandoned by mother and father. And it's just wallowing there in its filth and in its blood. And by miracle, I look at this child and I just say, you will live. And I departed for some time, and I came back, and the child had grown and was at physical maturity. And in its filth, I cleaned her, I washed her, I bathed her, and I loved her. And I saw that she was at the age for love. I love that line. I saw that she was old enough to love me back. And so I, the great king, clothed her, and I covered her with the best of linens and the best of jewelry, and I gave her the best of food, and I honored her as a princess amongst princesses with my love and my marriage and my loyalty and my passion and my zeal and all my heart. And her eyes never stopped wandering. She slept with Egypt, she slept with Assyria, she slept with these people, and it was so bad because usually when someone's acting like a prostitute, they trade their body to get money back, but instead she bought her way into every lover's house by giving away my treasures and giving away my linens and giving away my food. She did everything she could to find other lovers and become poor because of it. And he goes on and on and on, and he's just trying to get, like, don't you understand how it feels to be so deeply betrayed? And the word says, how sick is your heart? He's talking to Israel, declares the Lord God, because you did all these things, the deeds of a brazen prostitute, building your vaulted chamber at the head of every street, and he's talking about the idolatry and the worship of false gods, and making your lofty place in every square, Yet you are not like a prostitute because you scorned payments. And here's this line where he's just trying to because he's put into our hearts the understanding of wanting loyal, romantic, exclusive love. Adulterous wife who receives strangers instead of her husband. But then he goes on to there to, to prophesy about her rescue. Talking about the new covenant. Talking about sending Jesus. And so... I'm just, this whole thing of romantic love, this whole thing of earthly love, it's part of God putting into our hearts a way just to know him. Doesn't it hurt so bad to be ignored, to be rejected, to have someone be unfaithful to you? And God says, yeah, me too and me first. This is a small way of you understanding what it feels like to be Jesus loving his people when they don't love him back. Well, the brokenness is in culture too. This is from the book of Revelations talking about Babylon, which is Rome, and how messed up they are. And uh, Jesus does eventually defeat Rome. Rome went from the empire that controlled the world to now it's like a few square miles where the Pope lives. But just talking about, and this is the early church, okay? So this is written somewhere in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, so in the first hundred years after Jesus came. And it's talking, as I understand it, about the next hundred years kind of stuff. And he says, and one of the seven angels who had seven bulls came and said to me, come and I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers of the earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names. And it had seven heads and ten horns. And this symbolically, people would understand, this is like talking about uh, the seven heads are like the seven hills of Rome or maybe it's the ten hills of Rome or something like that. People get it. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold jewels and pearls and holding in her hand a golden cup filled with the abominations and the impurities of sexual morality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And John is peeling back the glories of Rome because Rome was the city, a city made of ivory and marble, the greatest city in the world where the best people did their stuff with um, big amphitheaters and big... Uh, what's that place where people killed each other? Sorry, the Colosseum where... Gladiators would battle to the death to the screaming cheers of tens of thousands of citizens who cheered on kill, 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 kill. A third of the city's slaves, all of them with no rights to their bodies. And this picture of. This massive beast, which is a symbolic picture of mutant government humanity that is just the opposite of a created being, being ridden by a being who has changed, uh, exchanged pure love for turning desire into business. The selling of souls. And this uh, woman on the beast is the uh, demonically inspired and devil empowered enemy of the church. And so these are pictures and we get it because we understand temptation. We understand love and we we can kind of get the opposite of it. So we can feel the truth through how this works. And so here we are, Um, a people in time rescued from ourselves, rescued from hearts that turn to anything but God through faith in Jesus Christ, and rescued and being rescued from a culture that is constantly wanting to say, Trade your faithfulness for momentary pleasure. Trade your heart for something that won't satisfy. Trade it, trade it, do business with me. And so instead we love. By this we know what real love is, that Jesus laid down his life for us. And this is this agape love. This is God deciding to love us so we could never earn it or deserve it. But it's not just agape love. He also comes with the philia, the friendship love. He wants to be our best friend, your brother in arms. It's also this storge love where he just wants to spend forever with us because he likes us. And it is the fulfillment of... I know it sounds so weird. We're not used to this stuff. They were very, very better at it in the medieval times. It is the fulfillment of erotic love where true husbandly passion has arisen... To destroy the enemies of the bride. Now we have this picture here of Jesus, faithful and true. If you can see it, you can't see it if you're right there, sorry. But you can look at it afterwards. And there's this revelation, Jesus sometimes people call it, where he's on the rider of the white horse. And uh, it's very G. Because there's just this like one snake's head being destroyed in it. Where in Revelations, there is like... The blood of the enemies going on for miles because of the wrath of the jealous husband finally being expressed against all the enemies of the bride. Which makes sense to a jealous husband, the good kind. Not the kind who's like crazy, but the kind who really loves his wife and wants to love her back and it will set his heart to destroy everything that has tempted her or touched her or dishonored her. There's this lake of fire for scumbags like that. And he loved not just with the word. He fulfilled that thing from Song of Songs where it's like even if you took everything to offer for love, it would be scorned. And Jesus took everything he had, all his power and all his wisdom and all his goodness and all his miraculous capabilities turning water into wine and nothing into something. And instead of being selfish, he got it all crucified on the cross to suffer for the sins of his girl. So that she could be forgiven forever. And her wayward heart could be transformed and healed into a heart that forever could be growing in loving loyalty back to him. This is how we know what love is. That he laid down his life for us. For love is stronger than death and jealousy is more fierce than the grave. Second Corinthians 11, 2 Corinthians 11.2 says Paul, the Apostle Paul, who is um, like Jesus' matchmaker, he says, I feel this divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. And you just got to know that Jesus today has this huge jealousy for your heart. He is not passive and he is not insensitive. He wants your love. And Paul is just standing here, kind of by the love of Jesus. And he's like, I'm jealous for Jesus' love for you too. Just being near him, knowing how much he has given for you, and how much he wants to give you, and how much he wants you. I feel that jealousy too. That you would just love him and love him alone. And more than anything. And that you could be like, well, you get Jesus or the whole world needs to boom. You were going to say the whole world gets destroyed, right? Because that's, yeah, right. I choose Jesus, right? Right? You get the whole world or Jesus. Boom! Of course, Jesus. Which brings me back to Valentine's Day. I'll hit all my markers now. Because Saint Valentine actually came into church history by dying as a martyr. Somewhere around the 300s, and you know, history's a bit, people are always so skeptical. But he got famous because he ministered to persecuted Christians and then was arrested and killed for the name of Jesus. Which is weird that now we buy boxes of chocolate because somebody martyred themselves. In one sense. That the flower shops all depend on this Wednesday because somebody died for Jesus. It's weird and meanings get lost over time but now you know the truth. Wednesday, whatever joy there is whatever like, ooh, maybe ooh, and you get the little hearts and they're woke hearts now so now they just say like, be yourself instead of be mine or whatever. But this day that's coming up was actually built on someone saying, I love Jesus more than this life because he loved me more than his life. Completing the circle and becoming the pure bride saying, I love Jesus and his church more than I love the world. And when the world comes to say, stop it or you're going to die, you say Woo, I get to see him soon, kind of thing. This is the heart of Valentine's Day. Uh, It might be harder for you to have a romantic moment, because you know what, you're going to be on your date, and they're going to be like, martyrdom, yeah. (laughs) It's going to catch up with you. And you'll have that moment. You'll both be laughing. Maybe we should pray, or something. (laughs) And I'm just talking because this is how the world works, but I'm just... The future of the church in North America, we are in such a time of upheaval, but the future of the church in North America belongs to those who love Jesus more than life. I can't change that. Calvary is toast if we don't love Jesus more than Calvary. He will take our lampstand away. He has not promised us one day longer than our love for him. He's bought our hearts and bought our minds and bought our bodies so he can love us forever. And he wants our hearts. He wants our hearts, our hearts, our hearts. And it's a good deal because he is so good. He is the greatest white knight and he is the best brother in arms. You want to be on his football team when he's quarterbacking against the devil. He always knows the right path. Path. And he wants to share all his trophies with us. And so, let's love him, church. The band can be coming up. I don't even... Let's love him more than life itself. Oh, Jesus. Can Americans even do this anymore? Jesus, move in your church that we would love you more than life itself. Lord, would you help us stop trading our faith and our minds and our hearts for things that don't satisfy? way, guilt, you're gone, gone, gone. For God's love rises on you like the sun, sun, sun. Every battle that you're fighting is one, one, one. So send your sin a-pack in with the sun. Women, feel beloved. Do not run, run, run. Sisters, stop a-fighting. There's no guns, guns, guns. You've got a man who waits upon you. He is one, one, one. Church, you're the beloved in the sun. Brothers, flex your muscles. You have one, one, one. Don't sell your souls for nothing with the sun, sun, sun. Bend your knees and get a praying for the kingdom come. Brothers, you are warriors in the sun.